Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Quite a few years ago, uh, there was a best-selling book by the Reverend Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life. And I think what's kind of emerging, particularly among the generation that's sort of, say, between the ages of 18 and 30, is that they're living the perfection-driven life. Not all of them, but that quest for perfection, that idea that your life could be a little bit better, you could be a little bit better, you could look a little bit better. Uh, Why aren't you on the beach that you saw somebody you know sitting on on Instagram? Uh, What are your board scores? (laughs) What are your postgraduate plans? It's, It's not an easy world to live in when perfectionism is the ideal. Today we're going to talk about ways in which perfectionism is the curse. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say? Kids. They are disobedient, disrespectful oafs, noisy, crazy, sloppy, lazy loafers. And while we're on the subject, kids, you can talk and talk till your face is blue. Kids, but they still do just what they want to do. Why can't they be like we were, perfect in every way? What's the matter with kids, too? All right, so why can't they be like we were, perfect in every way? We're going to talk about perfectionism on the show today and where it comes from and, and why it might be, well, it is, I think, almost empirically at this point, uh, an enhanced problem in, in the younger generation. So as some of you know, I am teaching a course at Yale. It's a seminar, 15 students, third time I've taught it at Yale. So if you want to talk about a group of people who probably have been driven by notions of uh, perfection, this is, you know, kind of ground zero here with them. And so I had to have the talk about grades. And so I just – and you just have no idea if you're not dealing with it in in real time right now what this is like these days. Uh, and so the first thing I said is, look, if there's some kind of grade you really feel you have to have, you know, just tell me, okay, and we'll try to figure it out. <laughs> so I'm not here to make your life miserable. Um, don't tell anybody, like at the dean's office, that I said that. So, I mean, my thought is, you know, I mean, if if there's some way that I can give you that grade, I'll, I'll just do it rather than have you psychologically collapse. Um, but then I told them a story. So, because I I went to this same fine institution, and I said, you know, when I was here in the 1970s. Um, I said, you know, I, I I wasn't very grade focused, and it could be argued that I did not make the most of my four years at Yale, and and I really didn't think too much about grades at all. Um, I'd grown up in a very perfectionist household where my parents were very perfectionist about me, but I, I was liberated from them at this point, so I just did whatever I was curious about, and so in the uh, fall of my senior year, I'm sitting at a dining table in Davenport College with several of my friends. And somehow or other, this all comes up. Um, one of these two friends was on the verge of graduating 
Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude. But the question is, like, well, how would I graduate? And so these two guys, Mark and Scott, they said, give us all your grades. Tell us all the grades that you've gotten in the past three years, which for some reason I knew. So I, I recited them all. They wrote them down on a paper placemat. No smartphones at this time. Uh, and then, But I think somebody had a calculator. And so they did a little thing and they put their heads together. And then they looked up at me and they said, if you can get an A in every single course in both semesters of this, your senior year, you will just squeak in to cum laude. You will just make it to cum laude. So I did it. And then it just didn't matter. You know? And that's what I was telling my students. I said, it just didn't matter. I'm 67 years old right now. It has never mattered that I graduated cum laude. <laughs> in fact, if you want to get punched in the face, probably a good thing to say to people would be, you know, I graduated cum laude from Yale. Uh, I, but anyway, I was sort of telling them the story. And they're all wearing masks, so I can't really tell how it's landing. But I'm sensing... Probably the temperature in the room is, okay, that's your journey. <laughs> that was your journey. We're on a different journey. Tell us whether we're getting an A or not. So uh, there are people who know so much more about this right now uh, who are with us, and I'm excited, including a fellow member of uh, the Yale faculty, actually the dean of faculty of arts and sciences. I probably already am getting written up about this. But uh, joining us here for the first segment, Thomas Curran is an assistant professor of psychological and behavioral science at the London School of Economics and Political Science who studies perfectionism, uh, has given TED Talks about it, stuff like that. Uh, Tamar Gendler uh, is a professor of philosophy, psychology, and cognitive science and the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale University. So, Thomas Curran, let's let's begin with what you see. You've, you've done massive amounts of studies and meta-analysis, and, and it seems like all the indices really do point to the idea that there's a rise in perfectionism. Not perfectionism as maybe an, a worthy goal, but perfectionism as a burden. So, talk a little bit about that. So there's several ways we measure perfectionism uh, in, in the academic literature. Uh, broadly, it's a personality characteristic, which I guess starts from a deficit thinking. So I'm not good enough, uh, I'm not perfect enough, or I'm inherently flawed in some way. And, and from there, we see it expressed in several different ways. So the first, the first way we see it expressed is uh, self-oriented perfectionism. So that's perfectionism comes from within. I need to be perfect. I need to perfect my life. Uh, and my lifestyle. Uh, the second is socially prescribed perfectionism. So this is the sense that other people and the, the world around me uh, expects me to be perfect. And the third is other-oriented perfectionism. So this is sort of perfectionism turned outwards on others. So I expect uh, you to be perfect. And uh, those are the three types of perfectionism we tend to see um, in clinical settings and also in research settings. Um, and we've done a lot of research to suggest that, that each of those uh, elements of perfectionism are increasing among young people. And, and there are a number of possible culprits uh, as to why it would be uh, increasing. One hates to blame everything on social media, but I do think so. one of the things social media does is set up a kind of feedback cycle of, this is my perfect life. How is your perfect life going? Are, are you standing on as nice a beach as I'm standing on right now? Look at me on Instagram. Are you having this terrific experience that I'm having right now? I mean, if you wanted the, a chance to quietly develop a sense of self and a sense of self-worth, you might be living in the wrong era, right? Yeah, social media undoubtedly has, has a big role to play. Um, it's by far the most popular uh, of the smartphone apps and million billions of 
young people are on it every day. And of course, you know, we feel compelled really, don't we, to be visible, to be always online. And of course, the algorithms themselves sort of encourage that social comparison, upward comparison in particular, because uh, it's the age-old advertising tactic, right? You know, you get at people, you put them in a jar, you shake them around vigorously, uh, and then you open the lid in 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 a, in a department store, basically, uh, and and you get people spending lots of money. So, uh, social media, because of the way it's engineered, because of the way it's, it's, it's structured, and just as you said, because of the way it encourages us to compare. Uh, with each other it's, it's certainly a, a factor when it comes to perfections so let's see what the wisdom of the ages uh, has to say about all this what the western philosophical uh, tradition uh, has to say about this we have uh, tamar gendler with us as i said so i, I assume where we're going to go back to where we're going to begin is, is with plato and aristotle and probably especially aristotle if we're talking about real world perfection so uh tamar gendler tell us a little bit about where we do begin Good, thank you. We do actually begin with Plato and Aristotle, philosophers who lived about 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece. And in both the case of Plato and the case of Aristotle, there is a notion of perfection as completion, as achieving something which is the goal of that particular entity. And Plato had the idea that the only things that were perfect were abstract things like numbers and that everything else was an incomplete approximation of perfection. You're correct that Aristotle had a notion of perfection as something possible for earthly things. But ironically, what perfection involved was coming to completion not an endless fussing or fiddling along the way, but coming to complete conclusion. It, I was a terrible philosophy student at Yale, so pardon me for this. My sense is that with Aristotle, he, he does direct us towards the area of our life where we can can realistically pursue perfection. Uh, if you're good at this, if you're good enough to, to maybe do this, that's where you should be kind of within the polis. You can serve the polis best uh, if, if you kind of go after the thing that you're most likely to be perfect at. Am I even remotely close to the truth there? You, you are. And in fact, that idea is already in Plato, the idea that there are certain things at which you have the potential for excellence. And so you see that in Plato's picture of what the ideal society looks like and in Aristotle's picture that the human good is the pursuit of virtue, the pursuit of excellence. And you get 2,000 years later in the writings of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, the idea that it is, in fact, your moral obligation to cultivate the ways in which you are excellent, that part of what morality requires is a focusing on what it is that you have been distinctively gifted with and how it is that you can realize those gifts. <laughs> Of course, Kant led a very circumscribed life. I sort of wonder, <laughs> I wonder if he's a good source of wisdom about uh, how to live and be happy. Uh, but um, 
I wanted, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and you're very, very aware uh, of this, that at both Harvard and Yale, and I'm sure at a lot of other distinguished universities, there are these very popular kind of almost oversubscribed courses on happiness. And I wonder about that. I wonder whether these incredibly high-achieving students have been so driven by the furies of perfectionism that now they think that the way to deal with this is to take a course on happiness and do well at that, uh, because this kind of striving for perfection tomorrow has kind of driven out or, or excluded the possibility of pursuing some kind of normal happiness. You deal with a lot more students than I do. I'm wondering what you see there. So I think you're correct that those courses on happiness are enormously popular on lots of campuses. But I think what students end up learning in them is the importance of grace and gratitude and self-forgiveness. So it may be that they enter with the expectation that this is a place where they can perfect their happiness and well-being and come away with the recognition that the way to get inner harmony actually involves a kind of receptivity to the world an acknowledgement of its challenges and a readiness to forgive oneself, even if you're striving for it, for not achieving a particular goal. Uh, well, I hope so much that they are getting all, all that. Um, so, uh, Thomas Curran, we're been, we're talking about Plato and, so and and Aristotle. The classical model that you invoke is not a philosopher, but a myth, uh, the myth of Sisyphus. Tell us what this has to do uh, with perfectionism. So this, this is such an interesting chat because I've never, um, I don't have a background in philosophy, but that concept of completion uh, that Tamar talked about there is really fascinating to me. And, and, and I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought up that tale um, because one of the things about perfectionism that we see all the time is that they really struggle under situations of failure. So they feel every bump in the road because they need to be perfect, but also even under situations of success, um, they never feel enough because you can never be enough. Uh, and this is this idea, you know, it's myth around Sisyphus uh, constantly rolling a, uh, a rock up uh, a hill for eternity as punishment. Um, it, it, it's really a, this idea that success is sort of like a bottomless pit for the perfectionist. It kind of it, it depletes us as as, um, as we try to to reach to reach it, and it's a bit like the horizon. Really, it moves further away as we get closer, and um, and really, that's why perfectionism is so really problematic, uh, particularly for young people, uh, because there's this sense of never enough, and if we don't feel like we're we can ever really be the perfect person that we idolize in our mind's eye, then that leads to a lot of negative uh, emotions and feelings about ourselves. Um, and, and a sense of, you know, life is hopeless. And that's unfortunately why we start to see things linked with infections and things like uh, thoughts of suicide. So um, it's a really interesting conversation to, to bring in the uh, philosophical side of this debate. And, um, and, and that's a, some, something we see a lot. Yeah, I do want to say that this is closely linked with, with suicide. And if you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. I get very nervous talking to young people who are driven by all that. And I wonder, Thomas, what kind of message comes? You talked about socially prescribed perfectionism. And some of that comes socially, as in from peer contact and, and kind of messages from family, community, friends. But I think about the culture too. And you know, I, 
I think it's not an accident that the two most popular Olympic sports right now are gymnastics and figure skating. These are both uh, sports where there is, in fact, kind of an ideal score. Uh, you are measured by how far short of that ideal score you fall. Uh, and uh, and that involves eliminating all kinds of little teeny tiny errors that would be almost indistinguishable uh, or, or in, undetectable by the normal person's eye. Uh, and, and there's, I wonder if we we gra- and, and I should also say these two sports are also highly associated with dysfunction, with with eating disorders and 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 depression and I mean everything that it takes to produce a Simone Biles. We now know uh, the dark side behind all of that, and I wonder. About about that. I wonder why it is that we like watching television and watching these people who have put themselves in this really you know, kind of ultra perfectionistic mode in order to win. I just think that's the way culture is. And anything and it, and it, and I think actually it's interesting you, you bring up bars and uh, you can give other every high profile examples like uh, Naomi Osaka. Um these are these are athletes who for the first time uh, and this is an astonishingly brave thing to do. Has said en- enough's enough. That that it's it's not worth my mental health to to, to succeed uh, when you know all around me and everything that's uh, occurring is is making me miserable. Um, and and I think that that really is a watershed moment in a lot of ways. And not just for elite sports and the kind of marginal gains mindset that elite sport operates in. Um, you know, it doesn't matter about the welfare. It's about getting the tiniest minutiae of the extra additional percent to get us over the line. Um, and I do think that that's really interesting and has a lot of and there's a lot of lessons we can learn as a, as a general society, too, uh, from those examples, because we are seeing un- unprecedented, not unprecedented, but we are seeing unprecedented pressures uh, on young people these days. You can look in social media that we've just discussed. You can look in school uh, at the amount of standardized tests that they're, that they're given. Uh, you could look at the college uh, where the, the competitiveness for college places, particularly in the US, is, is just insane. Uh, and then in the workplace, as they progress into the workplace, when uh, where you know we've got a very tight labor market, particularly at the, uh, the operationals of the income scale. And it's really, really tough to get on and progress so i think it's not you know sport is a really interesting microcosm of broader broader society and i do hear a lot of young people doing exactly the same as as those athletes are saying you know what we need to slow down not not speed up so tomorrow when i last spring when i talked to my yale students about grades you know maybe with four weeks to go in the term, I, I would say to a student, as things stand, you're kind of on track for an A minus. I'm sure you've encountered this too. Almost reflexively, they say, well, what would it take for me to get an A? And that brings up the question of decreasing marginal utility. This is actually an economics term, but you think it, it also applies to some of these human perfection-oriented impulses. Absolutely. So in some ways, the myth that Thomas adduced for us, which is this story of Sisyphus, who's trying to get a rock all the way up the mountain, and it rolls back down, is what it's like to try to achieve something that is perfect in a world that is destined for imperfection. And so much of what is valuable about an exercise can be achieved in doing a very, very, very good job at it. 
But the idea that there is a thing that is supposed to be and your insight that we're obsessed with sports that have a notion of a perfect 10, the idea that there's a thing that it's supposed to be will inevitably introduce a sense of inadequacy. And there's a philosophical outlook called existentialism, which encourages you instead to look at the process rather than the outcome. And I know in your teaching and certainly in my teaching, I try to help students focus on what it is that they are learning at each moment, not what it is that the evaluation of their work will suggest they accomplish. Yeah, I try to start some of my sentences. I will be so happy if you emerge from this course with the following, you know, kinds of insights or ways of thinking about things. But I'm not sure I'm necessarily reaching them. Let me just ask you one final thing uh, about all this. So in the world uh, of psychiatry, um, uh, Donald Winnicott in the mid-1950s, a British psychiatrist, came up with this model of the good enough mother that then got turned into the good enough parent. And that notion Mm -hmm. of good enough was really kind of transformative. Winnicott is still invoked uh, in in that context that you, you being good enough. It's like being Sisyphus and getting within one foot uh, of the top. It's sort of better than getting all the way to the top and having the rock roll down. you got a much bigger uh, distance to travel travel the next time. I'm wondering, is is there anybody we can point to in the Western philosophical tradition who, who does that good enough thing in a way that provides some relief from the phenomenon we're discussing? It's a beautiful idea. And you rightly point out that it's central to psychology, the idea of secure attachment theory, which says you love unqualifiedly the person whom you are connected to, whether or not they are imperfect. And we have lots of great books courses here at Yale. A group of humanities faculty got together and they have a series of courses that are called Six Pretty Good Books. (laughs) So they are basically a Winnicott approach that says there is great value to being very good and then devoting the remainder of your time to doing something else very good to connect back to the idea of diminishing marginal utility. There's great joy in perfecting something as long as you are taking joy in the process of perfection and great disbenefit in spending obsessive time bringing something to completion that is no longer bringing you joy. And that is absolutely a central theme in the critics of almost all of the major philosophical perfectionists. All right. So we have to take a break here. Thanks so much to Tamar Gendler. Let's make a habit of this. I'd love to talk to you some more times. Uh, Professor of Philosophy, Psychology, and Cognitive Sciences and the Dean of Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale University. Thanks for being with us. We know we're not perfect on this show, but we are actually going to ask you during this pledge break to make a few contributions, make a few pledges to support the kind of work that we're doing here. It doesn't feel like work when we do it. It feels like play. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. We're talking about perfectionism. Uh, we're talking about it uh, not, for the most part, as a good thing, although there's a place for perfectionism, uh, and maybe we'll have time to talk about that, too. Thomas Curran, uh, Assistant Professor of Psychological and Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science, studies perfectionism. Uh, before we get back into Thomas, I, I, I know this is a clip he will identify with. you. With He actually cites it also in some of his lectures. This is the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, talking about perfectionism in an interview with Hannah McGinnis. I think that a lot of perfectionists, including myself, we use that word because we pretend it's a fault. It's what you say in a job interview, right? If my biggest, if anything, I'm too much of a perfectionist. I care too much, you know. You actually secretly think it's a virtue. And so the trick is to actually expose it, to pull off its fake mask, and to expose perfectionism by, and call it by its real name, which is fear. Um, that's all it is. It's fear. It's fear that you're not good enough. It's fear that you're not worthy. It's fear that you're going to be revealed, uncovered, exposed, betrayed, criticized, all of it. And so you're trying to mask that absolute terror by never making a misstep. Um, and I feel like when I call my perfectionism fear, it's easier to actually make it go away because that's not as sexy and it doesn't sound as fancy. I always say that perfectionism is just fear and high heels and a mink coat. <laughs> All right. Uh, great image. Thomas Curran, would you agree with, with the bulk of that? Every single word. Mm. It's absolutely right. And and I think, you know, fear is, is one way to look at it. One, one of the things that I try to, uh, when I speak to young people, is to try to get them to think about perfectionism in in almost, almost a similar way, but around our, our, our tolerance of imperfection. So instead of thinking about perfection as the things that we strive for, it's much more, as I mentioned earlier, a sort of deficit type of thinking. Um, it's worries about what we lack and where we're deficient or flawed. And so if you look at perfectionism through that end of the telescope, trying to understand how perfectionistic somebody, somebody is, is really a case of trying to understand how, how tolerant are they of imperfection. And you have some people that are very tolerant of imperfection. Um, and you have some people that are really intolerant of, of imperfection. And most of us, um, are, are around are around the middle, but but everything that was mentioned there was, was exactly right, and I think for your listeners, that's a really good place to start uh, when you talk about perfection, when you think about perfection, because then it becomes a lot easier to grasp why it's something problematic. So. You know, it's kind of interesting because uh, two uh, current streaming television series, uh, The Dropout and Inventing Anna, these are both uh, based on, on real life people. Elizabeth Holmes, of course, is the one who's probably better known. But these are both about young women who, in fact, have subscribed so thoroughly to that notion of perfection and the notion of this 
this life that needs to be achieved, that, that a, a life of money and attainment and accomplishment and prestige and status are, are kind of essential for their happiness. And it's so impossible to do them, so impossible to, to achieve that they are driven instead into sociopathy. You know, they wind up do, cutting all kinds of corners and doing all kinds of weird things. Uh, and you'd hope that that would be an interesting object lesson. But Thomas, I'm thinking that's not actually how we address the problem. I don't know how we do. We ultimately do want to send a different set of messages, particularly to people maybe in their teens and 20s. How do we do that? Well, I think the main thing and the most important thing is, is to let, let young people know every single turn that they matter. Um, the world radiates indifference, um, whether it be, I don't, I don't know, in the outcomes of uh, zero-sum competition uh, in the workplace or, or in education. Um, we're told constantly that we only really matter when we've done something well, when we've achieved, or when we've uh, received likes or shares or mentions, in social, going back to social media. Uh, and, and I think there needs to be a key uh, you know, uh, there needs to be a reminder all the time that young people matter. Just, just to exist is, is to matter, and uh, and it's an astonishing miracle of life. And and to be able to to be able to um, enjoy and accept ourselves for who we are, I think that for me is the is the most fundamental shift in perspective um, that we require. Because you're absolutely right; those programs expose uh, a very commodified. A consumeristic, I guess the perfectionistic fantasies of a consumerist consumer and a consumer consumer culture. Those are the things that we've we've helped we 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 value more uh, than ourselves. Uh, and so, for me, that's the most important thing. I think another part of this is, well, first of all, I think another part of that is imposter syndrome, too. Once you commit yourself to a completely unrealistic and unattainable goal, perfectionism, um, you sooner or later are going to either become consciously or unconsciously aware that you're not getting there, uh, at which point I think imposter syndrome takes over, that this kind of sense that anybody knew how under <laughs> underachieving I am, how devaluable I really am. It would, things would be considerably worse than they already are. But I think, I wonder if the other problem is we don't teach people how to fail. Um, I, to me, one of the most useful things that happened to me, and happened to me rather late in life in 2008, was I got fired. I got fired from a different radio show. Um, and you know what? I was fine. <laughs> I was fine. It would have been probably the thing I dreaded all my life, you know, but it really was one of the better things that happened to me because I learned, oh, okay, I got fired. Ah, I don't know. I got a little bit more time to garden for a few months, you know, and then I was fine and I got on with things. I don't think that's ever taught. I, I could be wrong. Uh, I I see this all the time in young people uh, who I who I mentor, uh, and it, and it's really it's really sad actually because I the, the students always knock on my door. I try to be one of the professors that um, has always got an ear for my students, and and in the past I've been dealing a lot with academic issues, but much more recently um, there's there's been issues that have been around pressures and stresses and strains a lot more. Um, and 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 the consistent and the consistent theme is that they're just terrified of failure. They're terrified um, of of what they've scored and the, and what the feedback's going to say. So some of them are so paralysed by failure they can't even open it. Uh, they they just can't bring themselves to open their grade because they just don't want to expose themselves to the emotions that they've happened to have failed. Uh, because they they've I guess they've learned from experience that those things are really really hard to deal with. Um, and I just think that's so. Um, so, so so sad, and and 
And one of the things that I think is really important is, is as you've just said there, is, is to really, and this is what I try and tell my students, is to, is to try to reframe, reframe that as failure, as something that's very humanizing, right? We're fallible human beings. We're imperfect human beings. We're mere mortals. And we're going to fail way more than we're going to succeed. Failure is a statistical probability. It's, it's just regression to the mean. It's a natural and very humanizing um, experience. And instead of seeing it as something that's ca catastrophic, if we can try, if we can see it as something um, uh, that's a reminder, I guess, of our beautiful fallibility, um, I think that's, a, that's an important thing to say. And I think also what's important is there's, there's a lot of push on young people to recycle failure into growth. You see this a lot, right? Okay, so if you fail, you've got, you got to learn, you've got to develop. And I just want to tell you, just, just let them have failure. Let them have it. Like, don't continually teach young people to recycle their failure into success, right? And use it as almost currency to trade in for a better hand. Just let young people fail, and let them experience the emotions and the anxieties and the worries and the stresses that come for those failures. Let them sit with it. Let those emotions wash through them, as I said, as a reminder of what it means to be human, right? Uh, so I think failure, as you've mentioned, is such an important part of this. And if we can really just, I guess, quite radically, I suppose, redefine what failure means, that I think that will go a great deal to, um, to reducing some of the pressures that young people feel around perfection. All right. We have to stop there. We have great gratitude to Thomas Curran, Assistant Professor of Psychological and Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He studies perfectionism. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back after this. All right. So I think we just had a technical problem, which is very appropriate on our show about perfectionism and, and the evils of perfectionism. Got to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Uh, and Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this particular episode. Uh, we're going to end our conversation here with Kristen Meinzer, an author and host of many podcasts, including By the Book, where she reads self-help books and lives by their rules for two weeks. Uh, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So I think it might be helpful just to maybe begin with an example of this. And, and my understanding is that, it, is that one of the ones that you did this with that was kind of challenging was a book I personally had never heard of, had to look up. It's called Atomic Habits. Tell us about that and what it was like to try to live with that. Oh, that was such a challenge for me because the whole premise of the book is that we should aim to be better every single day and that we should track all of our behaviors and at the end of the day, categorize those behaviors as good, bad, or neutral. And so it really, for me, set up a, 
set of standards that um, I'm never good enough as I am. I should always aim for more, that everything fell into a good, bad binary. And that's not really the way life is. But sadly, that's the way a lot of self-help books are. They really try to eliminate complicated feelings, things that make the world feel richer and fuller, and instead focus exclusively on how to be more productive, how to be happier, how to be wealthier, how to be more efficient. And um, that kind of binary just doesn't work well for most humans. And sadly, it's really what most self-help books are shilling. Yeah, I think, you know, for most of us, uh, for example, I don't think of myself as a perfectionist. I'm pretty sure I'm not one. I might have been one earlier in my life. But I do still have that little voice inside my head that will say, you're you're not well enough prepared. You should have done more. You're heading into this thing. Uh, You could have been better. You could do this a little bit better. Um, And I feel like you need a little of that, that little self-critiquing voice that says, do a little bit more, push a little bit harder, uh, don't get overconfident. Um, but I think we already have that. And, and you sort of wonder, well, I'm, let me just ask you, you should have some kind of detachment when you do these exercises, when you try to live by one of these books. Um, but it sounds like it got in your head anyway. Yeah. At this point, I've lived by the rules of approximately 80 self-help books, I think it is. (laughs) And um, two weeks at a time, following every single rule down to the letter, even, you know, things that are in the fine print that other people may not be seeing in the books, I am doing all of those things. And um, you would think I would lighten up a bit about it, but because I really believe in the importance of Uh, being, you know, a guinea pig of really being the test kitchen for these books, of examining the messages they're sending to people. I really believe so strongly in the mission of our show to, you know, pull back the curtain on where's the sexism, where's the racism in this, where's the classism. So many of these self-help books are about classism and about never being good enough. And so uh, I, I really do my best to live by the process. And unfortunately, that does mean from time to time, yeah, they do get into my head, and especially if they are uh, tapping into something that has in the past been a problem for me, like perfectionism. So uh, it, it can be really tough. I mean, one thing that came out of this, I think, was your own self-help book about self-help, right? Uh, <laughs> called How, How to Be Fine? Yes, yes, yes. And we very purposely titled the book How to Be Fine in a contrast to what other self-help books are promising, because most of them are making promises that are just impossible to deliver on. And what we wanted to do in our book is just look at what are some of the things that were valuable that we took away from self-help books? What are some of the things that were not valuable, that were probably dangerous for a lot of people? And what do we wish more self-help books would say? And a lot of the things we were getting at were that Nobody who is writing a self-help book is more of an expert in you than you. They have never met you. They have not sat down with you. Over two-thirds of self-help authors are men, and over two-thirds of the readers are women. So it is an industry of men telling women what is wrong with them, telling them what to fix. And it is also an industry filled with people who were born on third base saying, if I can do it, anyone can. Well, is that really true? Can I do what you did when you were born upper middle class, white, male, straight, well-connected enough to get a book deal by your 30th birthday? Then no. Why, why should I be following you off the cliff when what you're promising doesn't even apply to who I am as a person in this world? 
It seems that there's so much messaging in our society about this. I talked earlier in the show about just the way that figure skating and gymnastics have become the most popular Olympic sports, and they require certain kinds of body types and a certain commitment to perfection and elimination of even minor kinds of uh, errors. Um, I think we see it on television, although increasingly uh, some of the lessons from from the dropout or or inventing Anna are don't try to be too perfect because you'll go nuts (laughs) and you'll become a sociopath. Um, But I'm just also wondering, is there... You said that in your book there are at least some of the good lessons from from some of these health self-help books. Can, can you maybe mention one of them? Yeah. So one of the self-help books I loved living by was called The Art of Dying Well. And in that book, it's doing something that most self-help books won't do, which is dealing with painful and complicated feelings. And the book is not promising, oh, I'm going to make you the happiest you'll ever be when somebody you love dies. The book is not promising that. It's talking about how do we deal with tough feelings? How do we make things easier for those we leave behind when we ourselves die? How do we live our lives in a way that our values are front and center now so that whoever's you know, writing an obituary for us later actually sees while we're alive what we believe in? And so th- there absolutely are some books out there that do try to go against the grain with um, with regard to living our best life. And that was one of them. Living our best life in some cases means preparing for death, which most Americans will not do. We're so scared of death in America. That was one of them. And then I also have to say, I really loved Dolly Parton's book, Dream Dream More. Um, in her book, what she's essentially doing is saying from the get-go, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you four wishes I have for you. These are things I wished for myself, things that I put into practice in my whole in my own life. And I hope that you can consider these wishes I have for you. I wish that you dream more. I wish that you're kinder and so on. And um, I think that is such a great model for a book. It's not starting off with the model of here's something wrong with you. Here's how you fix it. This is why you're going to be a failure if you aren't sleeping better or uh, richer or thinner at the end of this book. The book instead is really just imparting, you know, a story with wishes. And I think that's such a great model for a book. You know, we're almost out of time here, but and I apologize for that. But um, Kristen Meinzer, um, one of the words that kind of exists now in a way that it didn't, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, uh, is optimization. This is now started, starting to be called an optimization movement. Uh, I don't know, help people understand what that means and, and why we might be a little bit wary of it. Oh my gosh, optimization. Um, It's really about life hacking, being the most, better, faster, more productive. It's about um, everything can essentially be monetized, optimized. Um, I just repeated optimized. But uh, it, it really is a model that we can't just live life and make mistakes and have fun. You know, what if I just want to garden and I'm not good at gardening? What if None of my things in my garden are worthy of an Instagram feed or selling at the farmer's market. Can't I just enjoy that? Can't I just enjoy the experience of watering my tomatoes that are not flourishing? And maybe I don't need to optimize that. And I feel that in the world we live in now, we're not really allowing a lot of space for people to have those moments of just enjoying our bad tomatoes. And (laughs) I say, if something's worth doing it's worth doing badly sometimes. That's not something that I invented, by the way. Other therapists and, you know, people have said that before, but most of us are getting the message our whole lives. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. 
but maybe we should all abandon that and maybe say it's okay to do things badly and maybe life is richer and more fun and more interesting when we don't try to be perfect about everything. Well, I sense about five book titles for your future books in there, including, <laughs> including Enjoy Your Bad Tomatoes. Uh, Kristen Meinzer, thanks so much for uh, talking to us. Her podcast include By the Book, where she reads help, help books and lives by their rules for two weeks. We're going to go into an actual fundraising break. Our philosophy here, this is really true, is we try to do an amazing show that's different from all other public radio shows, and then we learn to live with failure within (laughs) that model. So as these nice people come on and ask you to support us, please do. Yeah.